Colossians chapter 1, all the way to verse 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our, fellow belo- our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Does anyone in here remember the first time they ate a tamale? Because I do, okay? Let me tell you, I do. I love tamales. Beef, chicken, pork, I will destroy whatever tamale you put in front of me. Well, several years ago, I sat down to eat a tamale and forgive me for this, I had been taught growing up that you put ketchup on top of your tamales. Uh, growing up, that's what my family did. We, we would put, we would just squirt a little ketchup on top of the tamales. Uh, and a few years ago, um, at this one particular meal, for the life of me, I cannot remember who it was. Uh, my wife says it was her, Katie. She's Mexican, so she was not going to allow this in her household. Um, and she, or Tristan says it was him, so I don't know who it was, um, but someone saw me do that and said, what are you doing, idiot, right? Why, why are you putting ketchup on a tamale? And they said, you're ruining the tamale, right? I said, that's what I was taught to do. I didn't know any other way. And lo and behold, I have discovered that tamales are much better without ketchup, right? They are, they are far superior. Now, why do I tell you that? Um, because the people in Colossae were attempting to put ketchup on top of the tamale, and they were ruining the tamale. They were putting, trying to add on to the gospel, and in doing that, they were ruining and devaluing and missing the complete gospel. There are two problems that we're going to talk about throughout this series um, in Colossae. First, which we're not really going to get into today, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you about it because we're going to come back to it later in the series. Uh, Paul is going to address the Christian standing within the Roman Empire. To this point in history, and perhaps all of history, there has not been another empire like the Roman Empire. They ruled for 1,500 years, and their territory spanned all the way from England to India. And if you were a person that submitted to Caesar and the systems of Rome, then there were promises that were made for you, a protection of justice. And Paul is going to lift the veil a little bit and challenge the believers in Colossae by reminding them that Rome is not their hope, that they should strive to belong to another kingdom that they belong in 
all together. So that's the first one. We're not really going to get into that much today. But the second that we are going to get into today um, is that Paul is going to address in this book what's called syncretism. Any of you ever heard of the word syncretism? All right, just a few of you. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, so syncretism probably isn't a word that but some of you have heard, and probably not a word that you use in your day-to-day life. But in our analogy, it's like adding ketchup to the tamale, whereas the tamale doesn't need ketchup. When you do that, you, in fact, ruin the tamale. And in many of these Roman cities, you would have a very diverse group of people. It would bring about many different ideas, many different philosophies, many different religions. And so the Colossians were saying, yes, I want Jesus. I like Jesus. I love Jesus. But I know a guy who was telling me about uh, this other guy who was doing some mysticism and that he believes in. And so I think I'm going to take a little bit of what he believes and we're going to put it on top of what I believe about Jesus. That the very basic idea of syncretism is the combining of different religions, cultures, philosophies, or schools of thought. That they were taking truths about Jesus and they were combining it with these other ideas, these other religions, these other philosophies. Now, Intro sermons are hard. So intro series sermons are hard because we go through all this context and sometimes we disconnect ourselves from the history. Um, so before you disconnect yourself from syncretism and what was happening in Colossae, you need to know that this is very much a reality today. Very much a reality today. Um, this is where we get the prosperity gospel, is it not? In our modern culture, we see and we hear all the time the philosophy of materialism. It's preached every day. That if you want happiness, then you have to have a certain amount of money. If you want happiness, then you have to have the new iPhone. If you want happiness, you have to have this thing. So what you see with the prosperity gospel is the church's attempt to combine loving Jesus with the pursuit of materialism. You see syncretism also with individualism. That the Christian is trying to combine their love for Jesus with individualism. That I don't need uh, anyone or anything. Truth is subject to my own interpretation. You ever heard someone say, well, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth? Yeah, Um, that's individualism. That's a very individualistic way of thinking. And many Christians attempt to combine individualism with Christianity by saying, I don't need to be part of a church. I just need Jesus, right? All that matters is me and Jesus. And it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about scripture or my life. I'm going to think what I want to think. And your opinion doesn't matter to me. You also see syncretism in many churches by how we measure what it means to be a successful church, that we take the cultural idea of success and we apply that to the church. Like, for example, if you own a business, you're going to measure your success by how much money you had come in or how many new customers you might have. Um, And we take that philosophy and we use it to measure if our church is successful or not. For example, to this day, in fact, it happened a couple weeks ago, if I run into someone that is a friend of mine and they don't attend Renewal Church, then more than likely, the first question they're going to ask me is, so how many people do you have coming now? As if the measure of success for our church is how many people are in the seats, right? And so it's so tempting for a church to create a culture that is driven by numbers, people and money. And I'm not saying those things don't matter. They do. But to be driven by that, how do we get more people in the seats and how do we get them to give more money? And and when that's the value right, that the church makes decisions by, then what happens? We water down God's word, right? We, We make it to where you're as comfortable as you can be, because if you're as comfortable as you can be, then you're happy, and if you're happy, then you're gonna get more money, right? We buy 
big, beautiful church buildings that we don't necessarily need. We hire musicians that have all the talent in the world, but they have no idea what it means to position the people of God to worship him. And the Sunday morning service is pretty on the outside, but when you peel back the layers, it's actually quite empty. Right? I could go on and on with different examples of syncretism, but we're actually going to spend an entire week talking about this idea. But what Paul is going to say in the book of Colossians is that you don't add on to Christ. There is no growth apart from Christ. You can't detach yourself from Jesus and expect to grow. These other philosophies and these other teachings on how to live, they aren't going to lead you to the source of life. You don't grow apart from him. You grow with Christ, which is why we're calling the series Rooted. Colossians 2.6, um, Tristan read it for you earlier. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, that under the surface of your life, what are your roots? What tethers you, right? Paul is going to say there is something that tethers you to eternity, and it is Christ himself. You don't need anything outside of him. You don't need anything outside of Christ to live an abundant life. That's why he says in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then pay attention to verse 9, 9. It is vastly important. He says, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's an incredibly important statement. He's essentially telling them, all these other voices that you hear, they are telling you to find the meaning of life. They are liars. So root yourself in Jesus because you don't add to him. You don't outgrow him. You grow in him. And so throughout this book, you're going to see Paul. I mean, you're going to see him use the highest, most exalting, most beautiful words that language can find to describe Jesus, okay? that he is supreme above all other things. He has authority over all things. In him is all that is beautiful, and he is worthy of praise. And the people in Colossae believe that if you want fullness, then you have to integrate into your life these other philosophies and beliefs on top of Jesus. And Paul's going to say, no, no, the fullness of all things is found in Jesus alone. You don't need anything else. And so let's jump in. We haven't even started. Okay, Um, so he starts the book by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So the letter of Colossians is one of the four letters known as the captivity letters or the prison epistles, okay? Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon while he was under house arrest in Rome. And one thing that I found interesting is that in this letter, Paul uses the word apostle to identify himself. That word apostle, uh, it was originally used to describe a ship that would carry cargo. The idea is that a vessel, uh, this is a vessel that brings something of value from one people to another. It's an apostle. And then it became a word that would describe an emissary. I'm bringing a message from my king to your king. It's not my message. I didn't write it, but I am an apostle of the king in the new test in the new testament we see a group of people that had that physically knew Jesus and were commissioned by Jesus to be his apostles to be his emissaries to bring something of value the words of God to the world now remember Paul 
used to be Saul, right? Until he had an encounter with Jesus in Acts when he changed his name. And in that moment, Jesus sent him to be a messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles. And by using that word apostle, Paul is establishing his authority at the beginning of this letter. And what's interesting, you contrast that with like the book of Philippians or Philemon, where Paul will describe himself as a servant or a prisoner, that, that Paul appears to change how he describes himself depending on who he's talking to, that here he changes his descriptor to match the tone and the purpose of the letter. There, there are some that believe that perhaps there were some in Colossae that were challenging Paul's authority and his apostleship. And so Paul wants to make it clear that he has been appointed by Jesus to speak to them. And something that's different about this letter than the other letters that Paul has written is that Paul has not actually met these people in Colossae, okay? Paul has planted many churches to this point, but this church is different. This church was started uh, not by Paul. It was started by someone else. So let's talk about that. Let's read verses 3 through 7, and then I'll tell you more about that. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. And look at verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Okay, notice what Paul says in verse 3. He says, we always thank who? God, easy questions today. Don't worry, okay? Um, he says, we, when we pray for you, we thank God. The fact that this church exists is a testimony to the power of God. I mean, if you notice verse 7, Paul mentions Epaphras. Epaphras became a Christian while he was in Ephesus, uh, where he sat under the teachings of Paul. And this is so cool, right? Epaphras, where was he from? He was from Colossae. So Epaphras hears the gospel from Paul in Ephesus, and what does he do? He goes home to Colossae and begins to preach. And so when Paul says, thank, we thank God for you, in verse 3, that statement has some weight to it. Because Paul knows that he hasn't gone to Colossae. He hasn't put in the labor to start a church there. God started this church. So he says, when I think about you, I thank God. And so he says in verse 6 that this gospel has come to you, and in, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. He says, this gospel that has come to you, it is bearing fruit, and it is increasing all over the world. And he's reminding them, you're not alone in this. The gospel that you heard is spreading. So I've got a map uh, that's going to come up on the screen. I want to give you an idea where this is on the globe. So you can see uh, at the top left there, that is where Paul is. He's under house arrest, and he's writing uh, this letter. And then if you look down right in the middle at number four, that's where Ephesus is. So that's where Epaphras, here's the gospel from Paul, and then he just moves a little bit over to the right to Colossae. Now, Colossae is in modern-day Turkey. You can actually visit the city of Colossae today. But if you go there, this is what you're going to see. Get another slide for you. That's what you're going to see. That's Colossae, okay? Modern-day Turkey. It's just a massive field. Underneath all that soil is the city of Colossae. It's never been excavated. No one's actually dug up 
the ancient city of Colossae. And the reason for that is because that land is very fertile ground. There's still crops there today. And so what's so cool about this letter is that you'll notice as you, pay, as you look throughout the text, throughout the rest of the series, Paul will use farming language over and over to explain the gospel. He'll do it today. He will say, I want to see you bear fruit and increase. He'll talk about being rooted in Christ, that he uses language that they understand because of the context in which they live. So, all right, now look at verse 9. We're going to pick it up. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled, underline, circle that word filled, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul says, I'm praying that you would be filled with knowledge of God's will, that you would be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding. I am praying that you are filled with the knowledge of his will. That word fill is important. We found out later that the idea that the false teachers in Colossae were pushing was centered around the idea of being filled. It was centered around that word, that they were saying that there is a secret fullness that one can get access to. The Greek word for fullness is the word pleroma, Pleroma. It refers to the totality of divine powers, the full power of God. And we know from other literature, from church history, that there, during this time there's a group of people that believed in the pleroma of God, the full fullness of God, the full power of God, a fullness of God that you could get access through, through what's called Gnosis. So if you ever heard of the term Gnosticism, anybody ever heard of Gnosticism? If you've ever heard of that term Gnosticism, uh, this is where it comes from. So imagine I come to you and I say, hey, I've got a secret knowledge, right? I've got a secret knowledge that, that I can give you. Only I have it. I have the pleroma of gnosis. I have the fullness of knowledge. So the pitch here in Colossae is, hey, Epaphras taught you about Jesus, but if you want the fullness of God, then you need the secret knowledge that I have. Does that make sense? This is why uh, verse 19, Paul basically says, hey, that's a load of baloney. He, he says in Colossians 1.19, for in him, Jesus Christ, all, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You don't grow apart from Christ. There is no secret knowledge. All knowledge is found in Jesus. You don't grow apart from him. You grow in him. All things were created through him and for him. And that's next week. Come next week. All right? Don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But that's why Paul says, hey, that, that I'm praying that you have spiritual wisdom, that the Holy Spirit would give you wisdom day in and day out, and understanding that when you encounter the dangers that you are facing, you understand that they are, in fact, a danger. What they're saying is dangerous. He's making the point, there is no secret knowledge that you need to gain. All knowledge is found in God, and I'm praying that he gives it to you that they are able to listen to the voices that tries to in influence them and say with confidence, no, that's not the will of God. You ever heard someone say something and you're like, no, that's not true. That's not who my God is. How, how many times have you listened, followed that voice, right? There's danger out there. That they are able to listen to the voice, to the to, to, to who God is, that they are to be filled with God's knowledge, and they are able to say, no, that's a lie. I'm not going to listen to that. He prays that we have spiritual wisdom. I mean, think about it like this, okay. If the world is a forest, 
And that forest is filled with trees and bushes and hills and snakes, all right? Walking without the knowledge of God's will, without spiritual wisdom, without understanding, is like trying to walk through that forest with a blindfold on. What's going to happen? You're going to smack right into that tree, right? You're not going to see that hill there, and you're going to roll down that hill, and you're going to break an ankle or break an arm. You're not going to see that snake right in front of your face, and pop you right in the forehead, right? Spiritual wisdom is the ability to see that I have God's word, I have the Holy Spirit, that Jesus said is my helper, right? And as we walk through this forest, I can see, oh, there's a tree there. Let me step to the left and walk around that tree. Knowledge of God's will that gives spiritual wisdom and understanding is seeing, oh, there's a hill coming up. Let me brace myself and walk slowly down this hill. It's seeing, oh, there's a snake there. Let me get my garden hoe out and kill that sucker, right? It's the ability to see what's in front of you and to know how to move within it. That God gives me wisdom, he gives me understanding, he gives me knowledge of his will, and so I'm able to see and move how God wants me to move for his glory, right? That we are able to see the places of danger. We're able to see the paths of life. We're able to see when someone is telling us something that is not true. He's making the point, you don't need to go somewhere else for wisdom and knowledge. I'm praying that God gives you all that you need. Because he will say later, it's in Jesus that all wisdom and knowledge is found. That's why he says in Colossians 2.1, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea, and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. And then look at what he says. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is what? which is Christ. Yeah. Hey, people in Colossae, the mystery that you are looking for, it's revealed in Christ. It has all been revealed in and through him. This is, it's why I ask you to pray for me and for yourself at the beginning, that you take a moment to ask God to give you knowledge. My knowledge is limited. My knowledge is based on a human level. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit here. But if you ask God for his knowledge, then he can teach you. He can Feel you, fill you. And so, verse 9, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Okay, so the question now becomes, what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? So Paul says, We are asking God that you are filled with knowledge, with spiritual wisdom, with understanding, so that you can have the tools to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that you would live a life that is fully pleasing to God, right? And then he goes on to tell us what that looks like. First, he says, bearing fruit in every good work. Who in here has ever heard of someone named John Patton? Anybody heard of the missionary John Patton? Oh my goodness, For everyone else, go home today. Your first job is to look up the story of John Patton. It is incredible. It is better than any novel or any movie you're going to watch. Okay, So John Patton was a missionary in the 1800s. He was from Scotland, and he brought the gospel to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. On these islands were tribes that practiced all sorts of crazy stuff. One thing they practiced was cannibalism. 
I told you, it's crazy. Um, another thing that they believed was that if the husband died, then you also had to kill the wife so that she could serve the husband in the afterlife. You want to say it again? If, if, if the husband died and you were in this tribe, then you also had to kill the wife so the wife could go and serve the husband in the afterlife. This is where John Patton went, right? So John Patton began to preach the gospel to them, and he began to tell them about God, about the God who created all things, about God who created them uh, in his image. He taught them about grace and salvation in Jesus Christ. And one of the guys that he was sharing the gospel with, he got excited about following Jesus. And he said to John, we will trust him, we will trust you, and we will slaughter all of your enemies. And John Patton was like, yes, wait, no, 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 no. Stop. (laughs) You've misunderstood it, right? And he had to explain to them, no, like when God saves you, he transforms you. He changes you. No more murdering, right? As a Christian, you now bear good fruit in your life. Your life is marked by love. Your life is marked by service. And the rather simple question for us is, okay, what kind of fruit does the work that you do produce? Just think about your last week. What was your mind focused on? Where did your feet take you? What did your hands do? The reality is that we have no power, right, on whether or not the works that we do produce good fruit. We have, we have no power over that. We leave that to the Holy Spirit, but God does promise that he has laid out good works for us to do, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God provided beforehand that we should walk in them. So an idea that I've been thinking a lot about lately is the concept of positioning, okay? Do you position yourself to live a life that produces good fruit? Or do you live a life that makes it unlikely, not impossible, but unlikely that good fruit would be produced? Like, for example, if you plant a seed in the ground, it might bear fruit, right? You just drop it in there. It might bear good fruit. That's up to God. But if you never plant a seed in the ground, do you expect that God will grow it? No. If you, if you never read your Bible, do you expect that God will grow you? How are you positioning yourself to grow? God is the one who does it, but how do you position yourself to hear God? If you never send a text or reach out to someone how do you expect God to use you? He can still do it. But man, isn't, or how are you positioning yourself to be used by God? The end result is up to him, but does your heart desire to be used by God? Does your heart desire to grow? So Paul says, I'm praying that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, that you would bear fruit in good works, and that you would increase in the knowledge of God. So bearing good fruit and knowing God doesn't happen separately. The Bible tends to put them together. For example, Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And what happens when you delight in the Lord, when you meditate on his word? He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So here's the question. How are you going to know what good works are, the good works of God? How do you know what works you should be doing if you don't know your God? 
Like, for example, if I came home and I said to Katie, she doesn't know I'm doing this, um, and I said to Katie, hi, love, I bought you something, right? And I proceeded to hand her a meat thermometer. Thank you. What's she going to think? Like, she's going to be like, uh, what, is, what is this? You, you want me to cook more, right? I'm never going to give her a meat thermometer. I know my wife. I know what she loves. I know what she cares about. I know what she's passionate about. If I want to love my wife, I'm going to bring home a Hoya houseplant because that's what she loves. If you know Katie, she loves her plants, right? She's going to love that. She's going to find joy in that. And so here's a good question to ask. What are you feeding your soul? What are you feeding your soul? There was a movie that came out in 2006. It was called um, Idiocracy. Um, I don't necessarily recommend that movie. Just It's a movie that exists, okay? Um, it's a dystopian movie that's set in the future where everyone is, as you can guess, an idiot. Uh, and in the movie, no one can figure out why the crops aren't growing. And a man from the past, from our time, shows up. He's just a guy, like you and me. The movie makes a big deal about him being the most average person in the world. Uh, and he finds out that these people were watering their crops with basically Gatorade, okay? And so he was like, hey, you, you need to like, put water in the ground. <laughs> uh, you need to water this with water. And they're like, oh, I never thought of that. It's the same for us. If you are filling your mind with the things of this world, then why do you think that you're going to grow? You're pouring Gatorade on that seed of life that God has given you. You need to pour the water of his word on it. And so how are you going to know what God wants you to do? You have to know God. You have to pour water on that seed and let him grow you. He goes on to say in verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So walk in a manner that is pleasing to God to bear, and that means to bear fruit through good works, grow in your knowledge of God, and then it is also to be strengthened by God and then to have joy with endurance and patience. So let's talk about strength. How many of us go through life, we feel discouraged, we feel weak, we feel exhausted, we feel purposeless, and then we come to church and we're completely apathetic or we're unengaged. And we wonder why we're so tired. Wonder why we're so exhausted. We choose Netflix over his word. And I don't say all this to guilt you, but it is kind of crazy how we rationalize things, right? I'm talking about myself, too. It's like saying, you know, I prefer McDonald's over this ribeye steak. We think that, that numbing our minds is going to give us strength, but it never does. Like, we know in our hearts and, mind that, hearts and minds that we need God's strength. We need strength from God. And every day we choose lesser things. Those lesser things don't have the tools that we need to move us into places of joy. The only place that we can get enough strength in this life is strength that comes from God. So Paul says, hey, I'm praying that you are strengthened with the power of God. And he says that I'm praying that you would have endurance and patience with joy. Notice that he doesn't just pray for joy. He attaches the word joy to endurance and patience. Why does he do that? Well, who in here doesn't get sick? Who in here never has a bad day? Who in here never has a bad year? Right? that we all suffer. And you put on top of that the theological garbage that people are trying to convince you of. Like the people, the people that Paul is praying for in Colossae, they are trying to be Christians in Rome. No one during this time likes them. 
They are outcasts. Like we in America will never know. We will never experience what they experience, the kind of persecution that they experience. And then on top of that, you've got people in their own congregation telling them, hey, you don't have the fullness of knowledge in Jesus. Let me tell you about this secret knowledge I have. I mean, he's saying, I pray that you endure through this, that you have patience in this, and you have it with joy. That when you are persecuted, when you feel like an outsider, when these false teachers try to convince you of something that is not true, I pray that you would endure with patience and you would experience the joy of Christ. And then the next thing that Paul is praying on their behalf, uh, on the behalf of these believers, is that they would give, I love this, I love verse 12, that they would give thanks to the Father. Give thanks to the Father. I think I love this one because I tend to go through life thinking more about what I don't have than what I do have. And I think as a culture as a whole, like we, we have an issue with just living in gratitude. It is so hard for us to just live in thankfulness for, for what God has given us. We tend to think more about what we don't have, right? Uh, and so Paul reminds them that they should be giving thanks to God. And then he tells them why. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Okay. So as a sinful, broken human being, I have the privilege to approach the throne of God and talk to him. I have the privilege to approach the throne of God and talk to him in confidence that, that when I approach his throne, I know without a shadow of a doubt, doubt that he's not going to send me away. He's not going to strike me down. He's not going to pour out his wrath. I know that God is going to listen to me, that he's going to care for me, that he's going to give me counsel and wisdom. And the reason that this is possible is not because I've earned my place at his throne, but because someone else has qualified me to be in his presence. Someone else has purchased my place there. And so that's what Paul goes on to explain in verse 13 and 14. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So I can approach the throne of grace because I have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. That I can approach the father because Jesus has rescued me and moved my place, that I can talk to the Father because the Son has purchased that right for me. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I have redemption. I was broken, and I've been made new that my sin that separated me in God has been forgiven through the blood of Jesus. And it's because of the cross of Christ that when I approach the throne of God, he doesn't see my sin, he doesn't see my shame, all the things that separate me and him, he sees me as spotless, righteous, holy. I belong there in the presence of God because of Jesus. You have been qualified to share in an inheritance with your brothers and sisters, that you can give thanks to the Father because he welcomes you into his throne room. There's no like when you show up. God's throne room. There's no like, hey, I saw you commit that sin the other day, so here's what I need you to do. I need you to go wash yourself off, clean yourself up, be good for a little while, and then when you're good, you can come to my throne room. None of that. There's none of that. I can come, I can feel broken, I can feel weak, and when I confess my sin to him, he does not turn me away, but he reminds me, yeah, I paid for that sin. I paid for that sin. You don't belong to the domain of darkness anymore. You belong to the kingdom of my beloved son. And he reminds me, so go and live for that kingdom. Go and live because you belong 
to that kingdom, walk in a manner that is worthy of my name, that has been purchased for you. Do good works that bear fruit. Increase in your knowledge of me. Be strengthened with my power. Endure and be patient with joy because you have been qualified to live in that kingdom. And you share that with your brothers and sisters. Does that make sense? You have been qualified, therefore live in that inheritance. You know, throughout church history, there have been two extremes to how humanity has understood God. These two extremes. They still remain today. One is to say, God is the Almighty. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. And the reason you should come to him is because his wrath is coming for you. Life isn't about your happiness. Life is about your righteousness. And so you better be reading your Bible. You better be praying. You better make sure that you don't screw up because God's coming for you. And, and when he comes for you, he will make sure that his wrath pours on you if you don't do what he says that you should do. The other extreme is to say, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do. Like, it doesn't matter what you believe. God is a God of love. He would never judge you. In fact, if he judged you, that would make him a bad God. All that matters is do you love Jesus? Because he loves you no matter what. So you don't really need to change anything about your life. You just need to believe in your heart that you are loved by Jesus. And what's the problem with both of those? The Bible, right? What we see in the Bible is that God is after one thing, worship. God is after the worship of his name. It's not, just, it's not God's goal just to punish you. And it's not just that he accepts you without any change either. From Genesis to Revelation, there was one thing that God is after, the worship of the people. And I've heard some people say before, well, it seems pretty arrogant that God's main goal is just glory for himself. You ever heard that? My question is, what else would you have me worship? Me? You? No, thank you. Right? In fact, if God knows that he is the source of all life, if he knows that he's the source of all hope, if he knows that he's the source of all joy, if he knows that without him we will remain in our sin, if he knows that in our worship of him there is full satisfaction, full joy, then wouldn't it be evil if God didn't demand for us to worship him? And so our faith is much more than if you don't do this, you're going to hell. Hell is a reality. It's absolutely reality. And without Christ, that is where you're headed. But it's not just that God's goal is that you just don't go to hell. It's that you get abundant life. And salvation that comes through the blood of Jesus. Therefore, you worship. And it's not just that God loves you. Of course God loves you. Of course he does. He sent his son to die on a cross so that you would know that he loves you. But it's when you encounter the cross of Christ and you encounter the grace of God where you say, I don't want to keep living in that sin anymore. I don't want to stay the same. I want more of him. I want to know Jesus. I don't want to be that same person. I want to live in this kingdom. I want to know what it's like to be a follower of Christ. I'm a transformed person. It's not, I am obedient, therefore, I know the grace of God. It's, I know the grace of God, therefore, I am obedient, right? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, therefore, we worship. We worship because he is worthy of all of our praise, that in Christ is the fullness of all things. This is Colossians, right? That was the intro. Um, I hope that you're getting excited. I, I know that I 
am, if you can't tell. Um, we are going to see the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. We're going to see his glory, his beauty. And the prayer is that as you walk through this, as we walk through this, that you are rooted in him. You're not rooted in the pleasures of this world. You're not rooted in fear. You're not rooted in philosophies and, and empty deceit, but that you're rooted in Jesus because it's in him that you get to experience the fullness of life and joy and hope. There's nothing better than him. And the book of Colossians is, is, is the, one of the books of the Bible that says, let me, let me push away all the garbage and I want, you, I want to show you Jesus, just Jesus. And how when you root him, yourself in him that you have abundant life. Enjoy.